Amen. Good morning, church family. How's everyone doing? I have a question for you. Serious question. What board game is popular in Prague? Checkers. Oh, come on. It's Father's Day. Allowed one dad joke. Come on. Uh, If you're new, my name is Aaron, and yes, that is the level of sense of humor that I'm operating at. Um, One of the pastors here, and I just want to dive in real briefly, just say happy Father's Day to all of the dads who are here today. Can we give the dads a round of applause? May your nap be uninterrupted and your smoked meats plentiful, okay? I also want to just address, I know for some, Father's Day can be a day of sadness, whether it's the loss of a father, maybe it was a missing father, maybe it's even your own desire to be a father that's never uh, been fully realized, and my prayer for you today, and my prayer for all of us today, is that we would know the deep, abiding love of our perfect Heavenly Father, uh, the one who loved us and sent his Son to redeem us. Amen? And, uh, you know, this, we're at, in this teaching series in First and Second Thessalonians, and my wife actually pointed out something really uh, fitting for Father's Day, that this, this chapter four and beyond, all these practical instructions that we've been going through, kind of at the end of the letter, have really all been about being the family of God. That it said, you know, the, the first week of these kind of practical instructions, we looked at Christian sexuality, and it says we don't want to harm our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with sexual immorality. And then last week, we talked about how working hard is this Philadelphia, this brotherly love, that working hard with our hands. And then today, we're going to talk about the return of Jesus and how we're going to be a family together with the Lord for all of eternity. And so I think it's really, really fitting. And she's a wise woman. She pointed that out to me, and I just wanted to share that with you, that this is all about being the people of God, all about being brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so um, I am really excited to preach today. We've got uh, a a really jam-packed, action-packed set of verses in which not only will we deal with the return of Jesus, but I'm going to specifically talk about the rapture. (sighs) Let's do it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And we're specifically going to pray that the Lord Jesus returns before I get done with this sermon. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, I've been praying all week that you would. You would just return. Lord, that you would, you would uh, split the skies open. We would hear that trumpet sound. We would hear that loud shout of voice. And we would be with you for all of eternity. Resurrected bodies, new heavens and new earth, sin and death and brokenness done away with. And Lord, should that not be your timing, I pray that you would strengthen every single one of us with perseverance and with endurance to run the race that we have before us, either until that day comes or we breathe our last. And Lord, we know that you want us to have great hope and great encouragement by looking forward to the day of your return. Lord, guard my words, guide my speech, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of the scriptures, and give us all, uh, give us all really hopeful and encouraged hearts today, I pray. In Jesus' good name, amen. <clears throat> amen. All right, so I have four daughters, and so far, three of them have been uh, deeply involved in drama, 
like plays. Like they've all been involved in drama, but like plays specifically, like drama club. So um, very specifically, uh, my second oldest daughter recently starred the lead role in her play, and it was this big, long production. It was like over two hours long. And in any play, if you've ever been to a play, you know that there's like a scene, right? Here's the scene. Here's what's happening. Here's the plot. Here's the song. Here's whatever's happening. And then you've got the next scene, and here's the plot, and there's this, that, and the other thing. But in between the scenes, what do they do? They dim the lights, they play maybe some quiet background music, and a group of kids who are dressed in all black like run around on the stage, and they're moving stuff around, and they're shuffling things around. I remember in this most recent play, there was one scene in particular, the scene change, where like, it lasted longer than I thought it was supposed to. You know, I'm a future-oriented person. I'm usually kind of like, hurry up offense. Let's go. Let's get to the next scene. But I'm like, this is really lasting for a long time. And I hear one kid like, ow, and, like, and they're moving around. And, you know, it's like, what is happening here? Get the lights back on. Let's get on to the next scene. Now, if you had never been to a play before, that dim light, weird changeover thing might be a little bit disconcerting. What is happening? Why are we doing this? What, what is, let's get to the next thing. What's going to happen? Well, the Bible tells a story of God redeeming all things. And I like to think of it that we're living in the story of God. We're living in the storyline of redemption. I think you could summarize the Bible as a story of redemption in six scenes. The first scene you find right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, that God creates all things by the word of his power. He speaks the stars and the galaxies and the planets into existence. He creates the animals and the fish and the birds, and he creates the plants and the dry land and the sea. And on the sixth day, he formed the human being, the man from the dust of the earth, and he formed the woman from the side of the man, and he had breathed the breath of life into them, and all things were good. And mankind was intended to have perfect relationship with God and to rule over his good creation as stewards. But the second scene transitions very quickly into a great rebellion. Many of you are familiar with the rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 where where Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad that they were not supposed to eat from. But there are other rebellions, actually. There's a a spiritual rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, and there's a societal rebellion when the people decide to build the tower at a place called Babel and to set up society against God. There's not just one rebellion. There's actually multiple rebellions where the heavens and the earth and the creation within conspire against the one true God to say, no, 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 we want to live life on our own terms. We want to be in charge of things ourselves, And so the world is plunged into brokenness and chaos. Then the pivot to the third scene happens in Genesis chapter 12, where God chooses one man, a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to use your family. I'm going to use your descendants to bring blessing, not just to your family, but to what, church? To all the nations under the sun. And that really is the story of the rest of the Old Testament is God working in and with and through this at times foolish and stubborn and hard-hearted people to bring forward, scene four, his Messiah, his promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God himself. No mere man, 
but the second person of the Trinity incarnate in the person of Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus went around the, the, the Judean countryside preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that God is gonna be in charge, that God will be in, in, in total control over all things, and that brokenness is coming to its end. We, we read in the Gospels that this Jesus lived a perfect life, this, this unrebellious, perfect life of devotion to God his Father. And then Jesus was crucified on a cross, his hands and his feet nailed to a cross, thorns embedded into his scalp, a spear thrust into his side to pay the penalty that we all deserve because of our great rebellion against God. But how many of you know that they buried Jesus in the ground, but as we just sang a minute ago, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he's alive forevermore, amen? Now after that resurrection, it pivots to a fifth scene where Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my gospel people to go into all the nations of the earth. And actually, friends, we are still living in this scene five. It begins the beginning of the book of Acts, and it continues until the day that we hear that trumpet sound and the sky rips open and the Lord Jesus himself shows up and says, it's scene six, it's time for my final victory, and the lamb triumphs over the dragon and we live with him in perfect victory for all of eternity. How many of you long for that final victory in scene six, amen? Now, at each one of these steps along the way, there's a scene change, There's a pivot point. There's a transition. How do we go from these different scenes? How do we go from these different moments in the story of God's redemption? Well, Jesus' disciples actually asked a lot about that. They were asking a lot about that at various points in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to Acts chapter 1, let me me take you back to this moment when it's pivoting from scene 4 to scene 5. So Jesus has died, he has risen, he's appeared to his disciples, and it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they'd all come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Is it the final countdown? Is it, is it scene six? Is it like, are we done? Is it here? Xandra, I should have had you cue that up on the iPod. You could have played it for me while I was doing that. Now Jesus said to them, ah, no. It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. He says, actually, it's going to be a little bit different. It's not the final scene yet. He said, there's another scene. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, unincorporated Snohomish County, Washington State, USA. Now, After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Imagine being there. Uh, We rightly talk a lot about the death of Jesus. I'm really proud of Sound City that we're not just a death of Jesus church, we're a resurrection church. We want to talk about the empty tomb. I think we need to talk about his ascension more. We need to remember that this is an incredibly important part of this, excuse me, this overall gospel message because Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now seated at his right hand, ruling and reigning over all things by the power of the Holy Spirit through his gospel people. 
This is that scene five. The disciples are saying, is it scene six? Is it the end? Is it the final? Is it, we're, we're done, right? It's it? All the glory, all the goodness? And Jesus said, no, there's, there's a program we're gonna do here. We gotta get this message out. Now, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And I just like to supply my own little translation, slack-jawed. Like, they're just, like, that's kind of how I imagine it in my mind. They're gazing into heaven, and suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there with your mouths hanging open, looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going to heaven. So if there's a lifting up and a covering with the cloud, there will be a coming through the clouds to return back. That's what these angels say to the first disciples. That's going to be the transition into the final scene six. Now, that's not the only place where Jesus' followers were asking about these pivots. And the thing about these, these transition scenes is, like, it's kind of hard, right? It's, it's hard to know. Are we in the transition? Are we still waiting for it? Is it time to go? You know, when my, my, my daughters have been in these various plays, they have to listen to the director who says, okay, go now. And sometimes you see a kid maybe be a little bit late or a little bit early. For us as followers of Jesus, we're trying to listen to the voice of the director himself to, to kind of let us know. How do we know? When's the time? When's it going to be the right sort of a, a season? There's a previous conversation that the disciples had with Jesus actually before he died on the cross, and they're asking the same sort of a thing. They're saying, what's, what's going to be the signs? How are we going to know that it's time to go? How do we know that it's go time and the end of the age and the return? And Jesus actually says, he goes, oh, you might think, I'm paraphrasing, he goes, you might think it's war. You're going to hear lots of news stories about war. And Jesus says, it's not war. I find it very sad that many well-meaning Christians will point to things like, oh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, that means it's the end of the age. Go read Matthew chapter 24. Jesus explicitly says, it's not war. He says, don't be alarmed. He goes, it's not famine. Nope, that's not it. Oh, you might think it's persecution and opposition. He goes, that's just like the beginnings of like a labor process. It's none of those things, Jesus says. <laughs> war, go read Matthew 24. Put it, on your, put it in your calendar right now. Go, go, go do it. Don't do it now, but go read it later because he explicitly says it's not war, it's not famine, it's not natural disasters, it's not persecution. All those things are gonna just be happening all the time. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, there will be one surefire way to know that it's the end of the age. Verse 14, Jesus says, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Missionary work, sharing the gospel to every people group, every land, every continent, every nation, is what Jesus said should be the sign for us to know that we're living at the end of the age. Now, every single New Testament writer, Jesus Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, John, all of them said, every single one of them said, it's the end of the age. It's the last hour. It's the end times. If we were to ask the question, are we living in the end times? The answer is for the last 2,000 years, yes, we are living in the end times. 100%. It's scene five, and there's only one scene left, scene six. We are in the end times. However, I was doing some reading this week, and depending on which organization you listen to or read, 
There are some who say that within as short of a time period as 10 years, maybe 15 years, there will be a faithful gospel presence in every part of the world for all the nations to hear. So, maybe we're living in the very last minutes of the last hour. Here's what I know. We're closer to the end than we've ever been before, okay? Because I know how the space-time continuum works, okay? I, I, I'm not going to say, oh, in 10 years, Jesus is rich in 50. I'm not going to say that. I just know we're really close. And I also know that the authors of the New Testament want us to live as though the return of Jesus is imminent, and we need to be ready and be prepared. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are writing this letter, 1 Thessalonians, they're writing to a church that is, yes, there are some Jewish converts for sure, but it's largely a Gentile audience. It's largely people who converted from paganism. And the pagans in Macedonia, in the, the Greco-Roman world, had all sorts of weird ideas about what would happen you know, after death and what would happen in the afterlife and what would happen at the end of the age. And so Paul and Silas and company are writing to help instruct them. In my research this week, I actually stumbled across a, a poem that was written by a Roman poet named Catullus in the century right before Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And Catullus has this line where he talks about like, hey, he's talking to his lover, he's talking to his romantic partner, he says, Let's, let's ignore, it literally says, let's ignore what the old people say. Let's live and let's love. He doesn't say laugh. He left one out. But he said, he says this. He says, sons may set and rise again, but for us, when the once brief light has set, an eternal night must be slept. That is ancient Roman for YOLO. You only live once. Oh, the sun sets, but it rises again. But when us, when we die, well, our sun has set and that's it. So let's live, laugh, and love and just take advantage of everything we possibly can. This famous poem, famous Roman poet, an eternal night must be slept. Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep so that you won't grieve like the rest who have no hope. In the end of this passage, skipping down to verse 18, Paul writes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you remember nothing else that I say today, if you remember nothing else that I say, remember this, that if you're a follower of Jesus, then understanding the return of Jesus is meant to be a great encouragement. And I say that with love and with care because so much conversation around the return of Jesus gets mixed with fear. It gets mixed with sensationalism. It gets mixed with sadness. Maybe for some of you, it just feels overwhelming. So much information, so much different perspectives on how it all happens. For some of you, you're like, I just don't even know. I'm just ignorant. I've never even really thought about this before. The big idea is that when we think about the return of Jesus, there ought to be an encouragement, a relief, and even a courage, a, a strength to follow Jesus. You with me on that, church? Now, 
Paul and Timothy and Silas want to help explain this pivot. What's going to happen from scene five transitioning into scene six? Go to verse 13 again with me. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We want to teach you. We don't want you to be sad. We don't want you to be grieving. We don't want you to be ignorant. We want to tell you what's going to happen to those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, right? That metaphor that came from the uh, uh, poet Catullus. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But then he says there's this right order of operations, right? This is gonna happen. Look at verse 15, it says, for we say to you by a word from the Lord, those of us who are still alive at the Lord's coming, we don't get to go first, We will not, we certainly not, for sure not, precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying the people who died get to go first. There's an order to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. And again, here it is. The dead in Christ will rise first. So whenever this thing happens, the first thing that's going to happen is the dead in Christ will rise. Those who have believed in Jesus, that's the first thing that's going to happen. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There are three very encouraging truths to start out with on this. First is, death is temporary. For all of human history, death is the great terror. Death is the undefeated enemy. But the Apostle Paul says, because Jesus died, passed through death, defeated death, and rose again, when we die, if we're believers in the Lord, it's like going to sleep. And and You know, unlike the evidence that some of you teenagers give to us, when you fall asleep, you will wake up again, okay? Some of you teenagers, like, I need to get some smelling salts or something here and see if you're actually still awake with us. The encouraging word from the Lord is that death is temporary. God created us to live forever. When we rebelled against him, we lost access to that tree of life to live forever. Now our bodies wear out and our soul and our body are ripped apart from each other in death. It's a tragedy. It was never meant to happen. But Jesus now says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. You get connected to me. Jesus said, even though you die, yet shall you live and I will raise you up on the last day. Praise God for that, right? Death is temporary. Number two, there's a great truth here, which is eternal life will be embodied We will, like Jesus, he says, rise again. When Jesus rose from the dead, what did some of his disciples think was happening there? They said, oh, maybe he's a ghost. So what did Jesus say? What did he say? Touch me. Feel my hands. Feel the the, the spear wound in my side. What did Jesus do? Like, what's one of the very first things he did after he rose from the dead? He ate breakfast. It was fish, which is weird to us, but it was like he ate breakfast. He showed up like, look, I am not a ghost. I'm eating breakfast. Touch my hands. Touch my side. What does the Apostle Paul say here as well as in 1 Corinthians 15? We will rise like Jesus. So I am sorry 
if you have let Looney Tunes cartoons influence your picture of eternity too much, you need to go back to the Bible. We won't be shimmery and see-through. We will have resurrection bodies like Jesus Christ. How many of you are kind of tired of your current body? Anybody? How many of you look forward to the resurrection body? Amen? Praise God for that. And truth number three, this is, this is the very specific question that's being asked here by the Thessalonian church. Hey, this is great. Death is, you know, we're, we're going to live forever with Jesus, but what about those people who die? What if they, are they going to miss out on the return of Jesus? And Paul and company say, no way. Those who die, they won't miss out. In fact, they get to rise first. They actually get to go to the front of the line because they had to experience that awful thing called death. And those of us who are alive when that all happens, we just get to join in the party with them. Is this good news to anyone here today? This, this ought to be encouraging. This ought to be super encouraging. A, a temporary death, a perfect resurrection body like Jesus, and those who have died aren't going to miss out. Some of you have loved ones. Some of you have family members. Some of you, even today, on this Father's Day, are thinking about fathers or uncles or grandfathers who loved Jesus, and you miss them terribly. You will see them again in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Take that, death. Now, I want to put a little parentheses around the next section. And I want to say that this passage raises two questions that can be controversial. And I would like to, as they say, when you're on thin ice, you might as well dance. I would like to attempt to explain to you my perspective on these. The first one I will spend a very brief amount of time on. Look at me with verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, some of you may have family members or friends or neighbors. Some of you have just had that knock on your door on a Saturday morning. Hi, we're with the Jehovah's Witness Church. The Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to say that Jesus is an archangel. In fact, they say that Jesus is Michael the archangel, that he was known as Michael the archangel, and then when he came to earth, he changed his name to Jesus. Now, I didn't get this from some fringe blog. I got this from jehovahswitnesses.org. You can go there and you can double check my work. See, Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse and a couple of other ones to say, well, it says that Jesus has an archangel's voice. Jesus, an archangel just means like premier angel, chief angel, leader of the army. And there's verses that talk about Michael and archangel. There's verses that talk about Jesus leading the heavenly armies. And I'm not... I don't mean this to sound like facetious, but the argument as I read their blog post is kind of like, well, have you ever seen Jesus and Michael the Archangel in the same room at the same time? It's that kind of a thing. Have you ever seen Batman and Bruce Wayne together? It's like, it's that kind of a thing. And the, the, the problem is, is that Jehovah's Witnesses are starting from a, a different belief. They believe that Jesus is a created being. The greatest of all created beings, but a created being. We believe, as Nicene Orthodox Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, God of true God, light of true light, begotten, not made of the same substance as the Father. What percentage God is Jesus? It's not a trick question. 100% God. He is fully God and fully man. I, now, I wanted to bring this up and I don't want to spend too much more time on that, but again, some of you may have family members or friends or loved ones who 
follow the heterodox or even, even heretical teachings of the Jehovah's Witness Church. And when you say, oh, we all just believe the same things. No, these are the kinds of things that are underneath the dif- disagreements with orthodox historic Christianity and an aberrant sect like Jehovah's Witness. We want to love them. We want to uh, preach the real Jesus to them, okay? In love and in grace. If you have more questions about that, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. If you have family members or friends that you want to be able to help articulate those truths in a more clear sort of a way. I just want to bring it up because this verse was like the main verse referenced on the Jehovah's Witness website about Jesus is Michael the Archangel. And to that we say, Michael and Jesus are laughing about that right now. So as two distinct spiritual beings. Here's the one that needs a few more minutes. The rapture. Question two. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now there is a teaching, a now common teaching known as the rapture that comes from this verse. It's the word that's translated in English as caught up. In the Greek, it's hapazo. And when they translated from the Greek into Latin for the Vulgate in early church history, the Greek word is raptus. And that word rapture or caught up, think of it like um, sometimes we'll talk about like, you know, just getting caught up in the moment or like they were enraptured by each other's love. It's that sort of a thing. It's like this getting swept up, getting caught up, getting, getting, getting brought together. There's like this togetherness sort of an aspect. There's this lifting and this joyful sort of a moment. Now, um, the main point where people speak about the rapture is actually there's a, there's, a, there's a teaching that there are two distinct events. There is one event known as the rapture, and there is a second event known as the return of Jesus. The raptured into heaven, or as it says here, raptured into the clouds or into the air, is this first stage. Most commonly, then, it's followed by a seven-year period of tribulation, as articulated in the book of Revelation, and then there will be a final moment uh, where the return of Jesus is finalized, and he establishes his kingdom on earth, either as a thousand-year reign or as just the final return of Jesus. This teaching is most well-known. If you're a little bit older, you might remember a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, I'll leave that to your own discretion as to whether you're a little bit older or not. For those of you who are a little bit younger, you will remember in the 90s, the Left Behind book series and the Left Behind movie series. Do not watch the Nicolas Cage version. Stick with Kurt Cameron for crying out loud. (laughs) Nicolas Cage is best left in like Con Air and weird things like that, okay? Now, I, again, I want to put some parentheses around this because I want to share with you What changed my mind about a decade and a half ago to where I say I do not believe that the Bible teaches what is commonly referred to now as this rapture teaching. I want to put a pair of parentheses around it because I want to to make a case and then I want to set it aside at the end and say, if you disagree with me, I love you. We will all be in heaven together. We'll sort it out then, okay? But here is some things that changed my mind about the kind of the left behind common rapture teaching. By the way, (laughs) All week long, in my notes, I kept writing common rapture teaching. And I was like, I just need to shorten it down. It's too long in my notes. And so I started writing CRT in my notes. And then I was like, oh, no, that's a different controversial subject. And I'll just leave that alone. I don't want to kick all the hornet's nests at once. Okay, 
seven, no, eight, I'm extra. Eight things I want to talk to you about this rapture teaching. Number one, what is now considered common rapture teaching, common teaching about the rapture, did not appear in church history until the 1830s. It's a very new ideology. It's a very new way to articulate it. By the way, the 1800s was a wild time in religion. That's when Jehovah's Witnesses showed up. That's when Mormon, I haven't even mentioned Joseph Smith and Mormons. There was, there was this great movement in the Western world towards freedom, and, and it's when all these different denominations started fragmenting out, and it's in this time that rapture teaching showed up, and it was uh, popularized by something called the Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield was a, I mean, it's actually a really a genius idea. It's like the first time that you could have like a study Bible with notes, and there's a lot to be commended in that, but he had heard this teaching from another guy, and uh, Darby, and then they popularized it together, so it's actually a relative new teaching. Now, hear me out. Our ultimate authority is the word of God. This is not a trick question. This is an amen moment for you, church, okay? But we are blessed to have believers throughout the ages who have gone before us, who have wrestled with these questions before, who have written about things, who have thought about things. And so we can learn from those brothers and sisters in the faith. And when, when a new teaching shows up, something that's really new, this rapture teaching is brand new starting in the 1830s, it ought to give us a little bit of pause. Hold on a second. Let's go back and let's test this again. Again, if the Bible teaches it, then the Bible teaches it. That's great. But when a brand new articulation shows up, it might give us a chance, oh, hold on, we need to reevaluate. Is that actually what the Bible is saying? Second thing, this actually is a bonus point. This, is, um, this one's free of charge. Matthew chapter 24 says nothing about the rapture. Matthew 24, verses 40 through 41, is often cited as a rapture verse. It says, you know, like two women will be grinding grain. One will be taken and the other one left. Go back and read it. The taken is paralleled to being taken by the floodwaters of judgment, not taken into safety. It's literally the exact opposite of how it's often interpreted. Go back and read Matthew 24. Those who were eating and drinking and marrying and carrying on business were taken by the floodwaters in the same way two women will be grinding grain, one will be taken into judgment on the day of the Lord. Side point, bonus point, go read Matthew 24. Put it in your calendar. Go read Matthew 24. Number three, specifically about this verse that we're looking at here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, is addressing one very specific question. Will people who died miss out on eternity with the Lord? And when you read this passage just in its own context, this is a pagan audience being sad and scared that maybe, hey, my, 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 my grandparents died are they going to miss out on eternity with Jesus? And Paul is saying, no way are they going to miss out on it. That's what this passage is about. And for my money, it seems to me to do an injustice to a, a reading, a clear exegetical reading of this passage to then import all sorts of other stuff from the book of Revelation or import a seven-year tribulation, import a second stage, you know, one return of Jesus, a second return of Jesus. That doesn't seem fair to this text, the clear reading of this text, the one passage that uses the word rapture, I would want to caution against importing all sorts of other stuff and stretching it into a whole construct when this is about one specific question. Number four, rapture teaching, in my experience, now maybe you can prove me wrong on this, but I went back and looked through some left behind stuff this week, rapture teaching doesn't ever mention the dead. 
Rapture teaching pays attention to one half of this verse and not the other half of the verse. Here's how I know this is, this is the case. First of all, in the Left Behind books, at the beginning of the Left Behind books, pilots are raptured out of the cockpits of airplanes, and you have to get all the way to the eighth book before the dead in Christ rise. When 1 Thessalonians 4 says, hmm, it's the exact opposite. You ever seen those bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned? First of all, that's sexist. What about unwomaned, Okay. Okay, but you know what I've never seen? I have never seen a sign at a cemetery that says, in case of rapture, this place is going to be weird. Okay, like I've never seen that. When the passage explicitly says, the dead in Christ will rise first, multiple times it says that. So we need to read this passage holistically and not just the snatching away part. Number five. Verses about the end of the age invariably encourage endurance. Not, don't worry, you're going to escape the tribulation. Every single verse in the New Testament says, endure, endure, persevere, make it to the end. I actually think that it's... um, the, 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 the analogy of Israel in the Exodus... They were kept safe through the pestilence and through the plague. They were kept safe through the floodwaters of judgment in the Red Sea. They weren't transported to the promised land. They had to trust God through it. Number six, I disagree with rapture teaching because every single reference to the day of the Lord is in the singular And there are verses that reference it joyfully, and there are verses that reference it fearfully. Yes, there are verses that talk about the day of the Lord as being this very fearful day of judgment and dread. There are other verses that talk about the day of the Lord as being a day of great joy and celebration. But what common rapture teaching does is separate them into two events. There's a a partial return of Jesus, this rapture partial return of Jesus. That's the joyful one. And then there's the really sad and tragic one, the day of judgment. I believe that the Bible teaches there is one day of the Lord that is both joyful for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and is terrible and dreadful for those who have rejected his offer of grace. And in fact, in a few weeks, when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you will see one verse that mentions the return of Jesus, and it says both will happen simultaneously. Not to give it away, but first, 2 Thessalonians 1, you're enduring suffering, take heart, relief will come, this will happen at the revelation of Jesus when he also inflicts vengeance on those who reject him. There is one day of the Lord There is one appearing. There is one parousia. There is one revelation of Jesus, and it will be both joyful and fearful. Number seven, I disagree with rapture, common rapture teaching because our ultimate destination is not heaven, but new creation. Let me put it to you very bluntly. I'm ruffling feathers. I'm ruffling more feathers. We will not be in heaven for eternity. We will be in heaven come to earth. I saw the city of God, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven like a bride dressed for her husband. And that city descends to earth and the Lord Jesus descends to earth. And what is our ultimate destination? We will live in a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven and earth joined together like a husband and a wife joined together in marriage for all of eternity. 
When you die, your spirit will depart and go to heaven. You will be in heaven with the Lord. But the very end of the story, scene six, is restored heavens and restored earth, all things brought together, all things made new. The prophet Isaiah said it. Behold, I make a new heavens and a new earth. John says it in Revelation. Our ultimate destination is not go to heaven. And, And sadly, that's how it's sometimes spoken of. Well, we get raptured into heaven and then we'll just be in heaven forever. No, we won't. Resurrected bodies, new heavens, new earth. Go reread Revelation. The time is ticking. You had a lot of Bible to read after this. Go read your Bibles, okay? Lastly, this is the last one that really, for me, was kind of the pivotal turning point to help me see some of these other things about the rapture and what specifically this teaching is, and it's this. When we're caught up, when we're raptured into the air, like Paul says, it is to welcome the king home. What did the angels say? In the same way, he'll return. Michael Holmes, who's a biblical scholar, says this. He says the word for meeting, or apontesis, was frequently used in secular Greek as a technical term for the formal reception of a visiting dignitary. See, what would happen is a delegation of citizens or city officials would go out to meet a guest on his way to the city and escort him back into town with appropriate pomp and circumstance. Some of you have been graduation season, right? In the New Testament, Matthew 25 and Acts 28, Apontasis describes exactly the same kind of movement of a welcoming party going out to meet someone and escorting him back into the destination. In in Matthew, it's it's the parable of the, the groom, the returning groom. And the wise uh, virgins who had their lamps ready, they rushed out to welcome the groom into the party. And in Acts, it's actually the church in Rome, they went rushing out of the city of Rome to welcome Paul into Rome. That same exact Greek word is used in the New Testament as well as all sorts of other non-biblical Greek texts. So the implication of Paul's use of this word here is that the resurrected dead and the raptured living together will meet the descending Lord in the air and accompany him in glory and honor the rest of his way to earth. Now, I want to put the closing parentheses on this by saying, what in the world is the big deal, Aaron? Well, it's the rapture verse. I have to talk about the rapture, okay? The big deal is this. Number one, I think it is always advisable, it is always good for us to wrestle with the scriptures and make sure that we are trying our very best to understand, right? Right? (laughs) That's always good. Now, maybe we can come to different conclusions about it, but we always want to wrestle with it. If I think I maybe misunderstood some things, I think there's some misunderstanding about this teaching of the rapture and the return of Jesus. Let's wrestle with it. That's number one. Number two, in my experience, I have seen the way that certain ways that this rapture teaching is given creates fear or legalism or escapism. There's this great terror, this great dread of Jesus is going to return when we're explicitly told it's meant to be a day of encouragement and joy for us. I've also seen it where um, the the teaching about the rapture is used kind of in a heavy-handed legalistic sort of way. I love what Tim, Tim, when Tim was leading us in worship here, the confession of need. What if Jesus returned? What would you be ashamed of? Whew, was that weighty? Like, that's heavy. And that's good. But you know what was really good? 
He assured us that on our own, none of us are ready to stand before the judgment seat of God, which is why the good news of the gospel is so doggone good. He didn't just terrify us. He led us to the cross of Jesus. Only doing the first half is legalism. We need the assurance of God's grace. And escapism. That's all just going to burn. Friends, I, I personally know multiple people who had such a strong conviction that this rapture was going to happen, that Jesus was coming back any day, that they literally stopped saving for retirement and opted out of Social Security. And we reached, when they, like, you might think I'm a little bit, like, this is people I know. It's kind of escapism. Well, I don't plan for the future. Don't, don't worry about it. It's Jesus is going to return. I, I think there's a warning there. And number three, the big deal is the Bible always calls us to endurance. My dad used to say, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Happy Father's Day, Dad, if you're listening to this. I honestly hope I'm wrong. I hope we all just get just raptured out of here and we miss out. But we're always called to endure. Now, close parentheses, you can disagree with me. And in about a week and a half, you can email Pastor Jason and tell him that you disagree with me. (laughs) Alan Bandy, who's a biblical scholar, says this. He says, a person's fidelity to Christ and theological orthodoxy does not depend in a two-stage return of Christ or a singular return. When Christ returns, I love this, and the church is with him in glory, nobody will be disappointed. (laughs) Nobody will argue about how or when it all occurred. Can I get a big amen from everybody on that? Here's my final big idea to bring it back. Both those who die and those who are still alive, believers who are still alive at the return of Jesus will be together forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth. This truth should encourage and comfort us while we patiently wait. Let me give you three ways that we can apply this. Number one, pray for, long for, and even imagine the day. The older I get, the more broken the world seems to me, the more broken I seem to myself, the more I just pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. I am not joking when I tell you that all week long as I was preparing this teaching, I just kept praying, Lord Jesus, would you please interrupt me? I would love to not, I would love to have, like, I would let the examination happen. I don't know if I you know, think I'm right about this, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Either way, just boom. Come now, Lord Jesus. Hope for that day. And I would even say, in a sanctified Holy Spirit sort of way, imagine that day. I don't know about you, it is very easy for my imagination to just be filled with all of the awful things you read in the news, all of the bad things that are happening out there, I want my and your imaginations to be filled with the hope that comes from the return of Jesus. Number two, I encourage you to do things that cultivate endurance and hope. We have been living more or less since the end of World War II in America in extreme comfort culture And if the hardships of COVID and political turmoil and things of the last few years have shown us anything, it's that far too many of us are not ready to deal with difficulties and hardships. We need to grow 
in our endurance, and it needs to be a hopeful endurance that Jesus himself will sustain us. Jesus himself will vindicate us at the end. When you hear of reports of people walking away from their faith and and becoming apostate and, and giving up on Jesus and giving up on the church, plead to him, say, Lord Jesus, don't let that be me. I know I'm gonna reach the end by your grace, not through my heroic efforts. Cultivate that endurance and that hope. And then lastly, gotta share the gospel. You will be my witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The gospel will be proclaimed in all nations, and then the end will come. How many of you long for that day? How many of you long to see Jesus face to face? How many of you want to reach the end? Then be encouraged with these words. Let's pray. God, we... We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that you have called us to live in these final minutes with hope, with endurance, with a kind of loving urgency. Lord, help us to be about getting this gospel message out to the very ends of the earth, whether that's some of us traveling to far-flung parts of the globe or some of us traveling across the street to a neighbor and inviting them over for a meal. Would we share the good news that Christ, though he died, is risen again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there is a day coming when he will return and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And Lord, we'll either have to give an account on our own behalf or we can stand in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Help us, I pray, to make it to that day. In Jesus' good name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.